listening to The Unlabeling Effect. We gather here every other week to explore all things mental health. Let us be part of your support system to inspire and motivate you to take care of your well-being. We, Vivian, Risha, and myself, Melody, welcome you to our UE community. Season 6, we have different valuable guests on The Unlabeling Effect to share their stories on mental wellness and tips to be more self-aware and emotional literate. In this episode, we're glad to have Jessica Hilton. She's the APAC lead for the New Normal Hong Kong, TNN. She organizes peer support groups for the community to ensure that people are not going through tough times alone. Jess introduced us to the gym and the Six Weeks Move Partners Project, which was a great reminder to us all that physical well-being is closely linked to mental health. It's our pleasure to have Jess here with us today on Unlabeling Effect. I'm your host, Melody, and with me here are Jess, Risha, and Vivian. We actually reached out to Jess on social media because we saw the presence of what TNN, the new normal Hong Kong, has been doing, and we had a coffee meetup. I had the chance to get to know Jess a bit more. Could you tell us a little bit more like your background and how did you get involved in TNN Hong Kong? Because I know that you're the person that actually set up the charity in Hong Kong. Yeah, so again, loved meeting you, Mel, for that coffee. I think we talked non-stop for about two yeah. hours. <laughs> and you were saying, I was like, I agree, I agree, me too. The charity itself was founded in 2018 by two men, who I now know to be called Ben and Jack. Mm. Um, they bonded over the loss of their dads. So Ben's a barber, and Jack, by chance, went into his salon. And Jack just started talking about the fact they'd lost his dad. And at the time, Ben's dad was terminally ill. Mm. And they just bonded and started talking. They developed a really close friendship. And then after Ben's dad sadly also died, they were talking to each other and they just said, look, I look around my friendship group and I don't feel like I can be completely open with the people around me. So I really would like a space where I can go, where I can just share all the thoughts and feelings that are in my mind. And then together they founded the New Normal Charity, which initially was just doing our peer support meetings, which we still do in the same format to this day. And they always tell me about the first meeting, like they bought way too many biscuits, thinking that tons and tons of people would come. Mm. Five people showed up to a little community centre in London, Mm. and they just had an open conversation about how they were feeling, their grief, their mental health. And then from there, it's just expanded massively, especially during the pandemic, we have a huge range of meetings now. And for my personal story, so September 29th, 2020, I lost my dad. Prior to that, I was back in England during the pandemic, and I don't know how many of you have kind of seen what happened in England, but our health services were really overwhelmed. So us, like a lot of families, ended up caring for my dad at home. Um, So we cared for him all the way through 2020. He has terminal cancer. Um, And while I was back, he had a a massive seizure, and we found out the cancer had spread into his brain. So we were caring for him at home, like watching that on a day-to-day basis, not really getting support from the healthcare system, which was not their fault. They were just completely Mm. overwhelmed. Mm. Um, So I really struggled to Mm. see that happen and Mm. to be thrown into something which I felt way too young to deal with. Mm, Um, And then after he died, I tried to get some counselling through our National Health Service. Mm. I was told, unless I'm in crisis, you're looking at a six-month wait time. Mm. Um, And I just was like, wow, that's how can people turn around and say this to someone that needs help? Um, so I was just like, there has to be, there has to be something else out here. Yes. I remember really by chance, I was on Instagram, 
and I, one of my friends reshared um, a post from Ben, one of the founders of the charity, and it was a, something that happened in London where men lined up across London Bridge wearing t-shirts and mm. saying like what they were dealing with. And I saw these two men, wow. who are now known as Jack and Ben, wearing these t-shirts <laughs> to say grief, and they were just talking like really like openly, expressively about how they were feeling. Yes. So yeah, I remember I fangirled him. And I was just like, you are amazing, what you're doing is amazing. <laughs> it's uh, like, how could someone just be so verbal and loud bold, about yeah. their vulnerabilities, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's and powerful. If, yeah, and if you've seen, like, if you, you see what Ben looks like, you can look at our website, and not to be stereotypical, but I think society can be. You know, mm. with these head-to-toe tattoos, neck tattoos, yeah. face tattoos, head tattoos, yeah. and you just think, this probably isn't a man that's going to, you know, talk, talk about going to therapy and talk mm. about how he's feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought they were great, fangirled him, and he was just like, oh, like, let's chat, and I started going to the peer support meetings uh -huh. myself, uh -huh. um, so that's how I found the charity, and I think it was about a month later, I started helping them out, and then mm. we just gone from there. Obviously, I moved out to Hong Kong, when did I move? About a year and a half ago. Mm. Um, I didn't know that I was going to start and found the charity here when I moved, but I realised quite soon after arriving that the problems we have in England exist here, yes. only it's much more expensive to get private therapy. <laughs> and the waiting time is a lot longer mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think yeah, that's that's my journey with TNN and when I got here, like I said, I wasn't sure, but I saw there was a need, I spoke yes. to local charities, I spoke to people yes. and they said, look, try, like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of peer support charities out here, we don't know mm -hmm. how it'll go. Um, but yeah, here we are one year later. And we also know that you've now involved a lot of local speaker into TNN's work mm -hmm. in Hong Kong so that the local people would feel a lot more comfortable if English is not their first language and you're trying to break that, I guess, societal stigma or that wall mm -hmm. in the mm. local community, which is great. Thank yeah. you for doing that. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> like, I feel really, really grateful to have some amazing volunteers mm. now who are helping me. They'll check me and be like, you're not really thinking about this from like our perspective 100%. We have local language volunteers who are in training to be hosts now. Mm. We work with some brilliant organisations. One's Dream Impact up in Lai Chi Kok and they're mm. very good at kind of advising you and giving you guidance on how best to localize what you're doing. Mm. We translate everything now. Yeah. Um, time auction, don't you have them? They're an amazing volunteer website where you can find specialist volunteers, amazing. incredible translators. We've got amazing. more translators, which are fantastic now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can't say enough good things about those two organizations. They really helped me and our volunteers. And then you mentioned to us um, earlier outside of the episode that TNN is doing like bi weekly support mm -hmm. group. Um, in Hong Kong, so mm -hmm. maybe like we can tell audience like if they want to join or mm -hmm. if they want to, you know, get the opportunity. Like how how do they sign up for that? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you just mentioned, we've got bi-weekly meetings now. So we run meetings for grief specifically. Mm -hmm. So if you you're experiencing a loss or you just want to talk about grief or anything mm -hmm. that you're going through or someone close to you, we have specific mental health spaces. So. Um, for men and for women also mixed and as mentioned we're launching um, Cantonese speaking meetings this mm. year too yeah so lots of opportunities to join the way to do it you could do it through our website so you can click um, information about the different meetings and sign up to them mm. you can send us a message on Instagram yeah. which is TNN Hong Kong that's our Instagram um, but there's a variety of ways you can get in touch you can email me Jess at normalcharity.com as well when you encounter grief that emotional journey how did you cope with that or how did you first initially understand what you were going through honestly badly I, <laughs> I didn't cope with it well I shouldn't beat myself up because I'm always looking at how I've dealt with things in a critical way mm. 
But yeah, I think what I did was I project managed it and I just thought like, well, if I do all these things, like that'll make it better. Like, and it's amazing. I'm so thankful that I found the charity and I'm part of it. But mm. part was also like, I just project managed it away. I was like, if I join this charity, if I do these things, if I tick off all these boxes, yeah. I will feel fine. Mm. And the truth is, you don't. And it stays with you forever. And mm. life does grow around that pain, that initial mm. really strong pain. Yeah, Things grow around it, but it doesn't leave you. And I think that's such a myth um, with grief that people think, you know, one day you wake up and you just, you, you've got over it now, it's done, finished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like when you first started to acknowledge that when your dad would be mm. passing or mm. like when you saw him getting, I guess, more and more ill, mm. like how did you manage your emotions throughout that whole journey from, I guess, for me, like, I guess I would imagine maybe from fear to worried and then like, how did you process all those? And mm. then to knowing that, okay, I need to accept that mm -hmm. this happened. Mm -hmm. And how did you then try to work on your grief? While I was caring, I think honestly, I just pushed it down. And I just mm -hmm. pushed down all that like pain and that trauma inside me. So I didn't really face up to it at all. And what I've learned through this is that the more you push things down, they will come out in different mm -hmm. ways. You'll get physical symptoms. You'll find yourself snapping at people that you care about. Mm -hmm. So I first started counseling really quickly, probably about two weeks after he died, because I thought this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I wish I knew back then, and I had a piece of advice given to me by a friend in America actually, he'd been in therapy all her life, because um, I did the counselling, I sat there and it, it didn't work for me, mm. and I was sat there thinking, oh my god, like, I can't even do counselling, what's wrong with me, this is supposed to make me better, like, yeah. everyone tells me it's going to make me better. Yeah. And I spoke to a friend that was in America, and she said to me, therapy and counselling is like dating, you're not going to match yeah. and gel with mm. the first one that you get, and yeah. I was honestly sat there thinking, like, I'm it's bad like how could I how could I not be able to do this mm -hmm. and what I know now is that it was the style of therapy that I had then that didn't really work for me very well found the peer support groups which honestly really changed things for me mm. because I feel like all I really needed was to hear other people say I'm five years on from where you are. I mm. promise you, in six months' time, you will start getting those good memories back. Mm. You will start to be able to think about them in a positive way and not yeah. just see all the sadness of what mm. happened. Mm -hmm. And they were right. So mm. I needed that. And I also needed a place to express things, which felt hard to express. Like, one thing um, with my dad, because he was so sick, was that I felt relief when he mm. died. And I felt awful like so much guilt inside mm. me to express that mm. and then I was in a safe space where I could be like I felt a bit relieved you know mm. and there was all these people in the room going I felt exactly the same yeah. way so that was really powerful for me yeah. to peer support starting to practice in a safe space expressing my emotions and getting mm -hmm. them out and not mm -hmm. just suppressing them down yeah um so that was a really big turning point for me yeah. to peer support and um, i've since had ther other therapists and i'm in therapy now it works brilliantly for me but it's finding the right person with the right alignment mm -hmm. with your values mm -hmm. to do the books Jess, I'm interested though, because it is harder than it seems to reach out to someone and said, I want to join you guys. Because when you are so broken, you kind of just want to, you know, hide in your bubble. What made you have that desire to really act on it and just seek help? I think that is really hard for a lot of people. For me, um, reaching out to them, I feel like when my dad died, I sort of became instantly conscious of the pain that other people go through mm. and I'm not saying I didn't have pain before like I've had things like breakups I've lost jobs but I just became very conscious because I was like I can't believe 
this is something going to hurt this much. I've never mm. experienced a pain like this in my life. Mm. And there's people out there who feel like this all the time. And I just think it really, that experience just opened my eyes to how mm. other people around me were feeling. It made mm. me much more kind of um, empathetic and in touch with my emotions and the emotions mm. of the people. So mm. I think in reaching out to Ben and Jack, it came from that feeling mm. of, wow, there's a lot of people out there who are really in pain and they're struggling mm. and they don't have anywhere to go mm. because of the wait list we've talked about because of the cost of it and the expense. Mm. Um, and I think to your point in, in talking about it, it can feel really challenging, mm. um, but that's on all of us to create these safer spaces where people can feel like they can talk about things and not mm. just, you know, the palatable um, side of mental health. So I think we, we are getting really good at opening up and speaking mm. about these things, but it's always the kind of nicely packaged stuff. It's mm. never the darker things because we're so scared to talk yes. to upset the person in front of us mm. or we feel really ashamed of how we're feeling. Mm. And it's those sorts of things that people need to find a space, whether that's in therapy, whether it's peer support, whether they have the, hopefully have the right support around mm. them, friends and family so that everyone has somewhere where they can go to talk about these yeah. more difficult things. And I remember like on one of our private conversation, we mentioned that sometimes even with kids, when they feel certain emotions, they don't understand, they don't have a word to attach to that emotions. So I guess when you, when you encounter some accident or some scenarios where it's just like so painful mm -hmm. that I guess you can't even find a word to explain all those emotions so I guess being able to have a safe space to talk about it and then maybe slowly things will make sense of what you were feeling mm -hmm. because it must have been so confusing for so many people like grief is a mix of a lot of emotions inside that mm -hmm. there's not like one word that could describe the emotions, mm -hmm. I guess. Why do we feel shame when we experience grief? Do you think mm. there's like a reason behind? Um, I think with grief specifically, mm. it's probably thinking too much about the opinions of others and how they feel you should be handling it. Mm -hmm. I remember um, when I went back to work, some a manager saying to me, um, you know, you seem too fine. And that made me feel very ashamed. Mm. I was like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, mm, how should yeah. I be more emotional? What's going on? <laughs> and basically, it's just like your personal journey with your grief and your mental health is that it's personal. It's so individual mm. to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we do, I think, in society and our communities, feel the need to look at how someone's coping and make judgments mm. on them. Yeah. Like, oh, it's been five years and you're still talking about it. You're not over it. Mm. Or, oh, you seem too good. Like, mm. are you all right? I'm a bit worried about you because you mm. seem too happy. Like, why are you happy? Um, and I think that's another kind of big misconception is that people think that grief is one emotion, it's just sadness, and it's not. It's many emotions, you know, yeah. it's, it's anger, it's relief, it's, um, it is sadness, but, you know, it's a whole range of things, mm. like anxiousness. Mm. It can really change our behaviour. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think that the shame comes from kind of other people's perceptions of how a, a journey with grief should look and how it should be packaged and how it should be. Mm. I love that description. That yeah, articulation of that. Exactly, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> but other than the peer support group, what mm. other ways do you think it's like very helpful for you to guide get you through, through or continue going through that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of therapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm in therapy now myself, and oh. it helps me to um, kind of reflect on my emotions mm. and kind of. Just, just check in with myself about where I'm at and how mm. I'm feeling and what's going on with me. Mm. Um, and it has taken a few different therapists for me to get to the point where I feel like that's kind of mm. helpful 
for me now and it mm. really is I found the right person mm. um, but yeah aside from that you know it's just I just think speaking openly about mm. the way that you're feeling yeah. and sadly not all spaces are safe for people to do mm. that but it's about finding your space to do that mm. and I'm not saying that you know peer support is the only option like I'm an advocate of what works for you like yeah. whether it's medical um, whether it's taking prescriptions, whether it's going to peer support meetings, whether it's having one-on-one -on -one therapy, mm. whether you'll actually have really solid kind of friends that you can go to or family members you can go to, fine, but just make sure that you're finding somewhere mm. for you to express yourself and share how you're feeling because mm -hmm. if you don't, I promise you, it will come up in different ways. You can feel it like rising, Ranging. rising, rising, and it will come out of you like in one way or another. Like I get really physical symptoms when I'm not taking care of myself. I get jaw pain. I get insomnia. Um, so it, it will find its way yeah. if you don't let it out. Yeah. So would you say that event uh, got you to where you are now? That you're so in tune and in touch with like how you're doing internally mm. and emotionally. Mm -hmm. But before that trigger, like how did you take care of your emotional side of things like because mm. you know the journey is amazing how you know from being so so in so much pain mm. to now being able to manage and actually take ownership of how you're feeling mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm honestly and truly unrecognizable as a person like if you would met me four years ago you would not recognize the person i am now mm. Before that, I so I grew up in um, the north of England in a quite stereotypical northern family um, where we don't say love you, we don't talk about our feelings, you know, we just kind of get on with life and that's just how it is. And that was how I was raised. So true, truthfully, I didn't really have much of an outlet to express myself emotionally. Mm. And it did take something really big happening to me for me to realise that, you know, you can't just push this down and just carry on yeah. um, in the way that I was taught to when yeah. I was a kid. Um, and that's not to say my parents did anything wrong, it's just we're all products of our environment and that's it's just culture. how they coped yeah. um, mm. with what they were going through. It's a coping strategy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just learn from that that, you know, it's not it's not wrong, but there's there's better ways mm. to manage your emotions mm. and your feelings and manage your life as well. And so. has like how you've grown influenced your family in dealing with like the whole emotional dynamic of the family? Like do you guys talk about it more or like how has yeah. it changed? <clears throat> I think, um, yeah, I'm, my mum is, is, is quite an emotional person, but in terms of entertaining things mm. like counselling and therapy, she was offered counselling after my dad died and she just thought it was ridiculous. She thought that counselling mm. is for people that are in a crisis. And I'm not in a crisis, I am fine. So why are you insulting me and offering me mm. <laughs> counselling is how she mm. saw it. Um, now she's much more open because mm. she knows that I go to therapy. I talk about it, like sometimes I can see the discomfort in her face where she's like, can you just reassure me and tell me that you're fine? And I'm like, I am fine, but she's kind of getting, she's warming up to it. And she even mentioned we were on holiday recently and she was like, maybe you should talk to your brother about going to therapy. And I was like, wow. Ooh, that's a change. Wow. Ambassador of therapy. Yes. <laughs> Ambassador of encouraging people to talk about emotions. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think... Yes, it is helping. Mm. I do talk to her about it. I think sometimes yeah. <laughs> she's a little bit bemused by it, doesn't really know what to say. But yeah, I think the more you can um, normalise having these types of conversations yeah. with everyone in your life, yeah. um, the better the outcome is for everyone. Because collectively, um, so outside of the charity, I'm a mental health first aid instructor. Mm -hmm. And I just think another thing we can all do is just 
all of us improve our mental health literacy so that when yeah. people do have these conversations there's no right or wrong way to have conversations but we can do it in a more receptive way which encourages more open sharing because mm. mm. i guess like even just the sound of going to see a therapist mm. some people might find it intimidating mm -hmm. when they don't know where to find a good therapist because as you said it took you a couple of times to find a therapist that actually clicks with you right mm -hmm. so i mm -hmm. think like what can you tell the people who are looking for the right therapist? Like, how mm -hmm. did you identify that? Okay, so like, firstly, to validate all of their feelings, it is really hard. Mm. <laughs> like, I found my, my therapist, he's in England, but even my experience finding this one, even though it's positive, I went on the British Counselling Directory, there are 16,000 therapists on there. Like, how do you even narrow it down? It's so, so difficult. So I think... Perhaps some things you can do is learn about different types of therapy because mm. the first therapist that I had mm. was um, solely person-centred, which basically means they tend to be very quiet mm. and sort of just try to encourage you to speak. Terrible for me. Like, I need someone to prompt me and ask me mm. questions because otherwise I just sit there and I'm like, fine, we'll just sit here in silence for an hour. This is really awkward. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't work for me. So I think do a little bit of research on the type of therapy. There's all sorts of different types. Mm. Obviously look for someone who's got a specialism or a special interest in what you're going through. Mm. And slowly you can start to narrow things down. It's the same in Hong Kong when you find therapists here. You'll always be offered um, a free session to, mm. to test out the therapist. They'll, no one will ever make you pay for the first session. If they do, don't go to them. Um, so do the free sessions. Have as many free sessions with different people as you mm. want to. Mm. Don't feel like you're going to offend someone or don't feel obliged to go with the first person that you find. I've I had that experience before where I've, I've been like, oh, I'm going to have to go with them now. I've wasted their time. Mm. Like, no, don't. Learn about their values if you can. I had another therapist... Um, who, whose values were quite kind of um, led by religion. I'm not a religious person, nothing wrong with her values, we just weren't aligned. I mm. see myself as quite non-traditional and she was quite traditional. So mm. I think looking, asking questions about their values and what they believe about certain things is really helpful. Um, and as well, charities, you know, in Hong Kong, there's sort of resource CC counselling, so they offer subsidies based on what you earn, so it doesn't have to be as expensive as we think it is. Mm -hmm. Mind Hong Kong, there's lots of resources on their website mm -hmm. if you want to have a look for places to go. But yeah, mm -hmm. I just say learn about different types of therapy, ask questions about their style, ask questions about their values, and also just, just go on a bit of a vibe, because yeah. you have to have a connection True. with this person, mm -hmm. ultimately, yeah. um, to speak to them as much as you're going to. So yeah, and don't feel guilty at any point, like they would rather you told them how you're feeling mm. than hid it and, mm. and ghosted them. So just have that conversation yeah. with them about how you're feeling. I also <laughs> experienced like having the wrong therapist. Yes, it's like core values, it's a style, but I find it most helpful, it's the personality. Mm. If that person is an extrovert and I'm an introvert, like, oh no, like it's <laughs> like they're gonna ask a lot of questions and I get like intimidated. I was mm. like, oh, I don't know what to answer. Mm. I read an article that says, on average, it takes three tries to find the right therapist. So I'm working on a side project and I also talked with a few therapists in Hong Kong and they told me they are also looking for a long-term client. Like they don't want to just close the deal. Mm -hmm. They're looking for people who match their core values, especially in politics. If he or she has to listen to you every single time, they will also suffer. Like you said, it's not a commercial thing to them. Most of the therapists just want to find the right match as mm. well. So that's that's really insightful yeah. for people who want to try therapy. I want to know, like, after being more like um, emotional literate, how has that changed or impact the overall quality of your life? Since I became a mental health first aid instructor, I've trained 
120 people in my organisation in mental health first aid. And that in itself, like the ripple effect that that's had, it's mm, generated yeah. conversations, it's mm. sparked conversations with people around mental health where yeah. they'll talk about it. Mm. It's encouraged people to share. In the courses that I do, people will talk about some personal experiences that they've had and just seeing people suddenly mm. see their colleague as a human being in front of them and not yeah. just someone that does mm. tasks at the, in the workplace yeah. for them yeah. is transformational. And yeah. I think, you know, that in, in itself just opening up those conversations and that journey, it's just, it goes through all kind of walks of my life and especially in work as well. Since TNN is founded by two male, I'm just very interested in learning from your experience. You trained so many people, you hosted workshops. Mm -hmm. Do you really see the difference between men and women handling like these kind of emotions? How can we show support to the opposite side? I know it's stereotypical, but I think that men do struggle to share certain things and they feel a lot of shame around certain things. That is part of how society is built. Mm. There's a lot of things like debt, for example, like heavily shameful things for a lot of people to feel like they can't talk about, mm. even more so for men. I think men can be raised from a very young age to feel like they have to be the man of the house mm -hmm. and they have to be this. the little things we say like come on little man you're the man of the house now we say these things yeah. don't we like and we don't mean anything by it but we're programming people to feel like they have to have a certain persona and I think from my own personal experience with men in my life like I've had past partners and friends tell me things they've never told a single other person mm -hmm. I'm like you're 34 years old mm -hmm. and you've not shared this with anybody before mm -hmm. so many statistics out there where men report being lonely much more than women mm -hmm. men report not having a best friend or a close friendship circle much more than women do mm -hmm. it's challenging to get men to open up I think yeah. typically women are more forthcoming with it but it doesn't mean that's impossible in England we have a meeting called boys talk which is specifically for men mm -hmm. to talk about their experiences and how they're feeling the more we can allow men to do this and not be judgmental of it and mm. allow them to feel a full range of emotion mm. and feel good about feeling these emotions and not feel negative or shameful about having yeah. a certain feeling the, the more we can encourage this to happen mm -hmm. some great events like in Hong Kong there's some really fantastic Movember events which mm. featured mm. kind of men in sport coming out and talking about their experiences with mental health and things they've been through. As a friend, you know, mm. as a family member, what we can do, what are the key message that we have to have in mind when people come to us and open up? The first thing that we need to be doing better mm. is listening. So it's about not interrupting someone, not multitasking, using your body language, using your eye contact. Mm. Um, sometimes people can feel it's a little bit intense if you're like face to face. Mm -hmm. So something that I quite like to do is to go on a walk or to drive because you're side by side. And I think right. that kind of encourages a bit more open sharing. Staying out of giving advice honestly like, they don't want to hear it like yeah. they don't if someone's talking they just want you to you know to listen to, mm. to validate what they're saying that's that must be really hard to deal with what you're going through I'm so glad you told me even if you don't know what to say just mm. say I have no idea what to say right now but mm. I am so glad you shared that with me and you trusted me mm. that's powerful we don't yeah. I think we feel a lot of pressure to give instant advice and tell people yeah. like this is what you should do and not just leaving it as a one-and-done conversation mm. I think my experience Experience um, was that people, it was almost like they like ticked a box when they came and checked that like I was okay, yeah. and then just they never did again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm fine now forever. So just continually showing up for that person. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you know if they if they don't want to share that's also fine sometimes it takes a bit of persistence and patience mm. and just showing especially if they struggle to trust like me mm. showing that you are there you're not going anywhere mm. that you are this safe person for them and sometimes that takes a little bit of time mm. um but they'll get there yeah talking about active listening yeah. we went to um like a mental wellness event like two years ago mm -hmm. and we had like a workshop it was just on active listening mm -hmm. it was amazing one person has to use one minute to tell me what you were thinking about and then i had to use one minute to tell you what i just received from you it was a really fun workshop it was, it was very hard it was hard mm -hmm. it was hard <laughs> i think most of the time you would you would forget like half of it mm -hmm. or like yeah. you, would, you would try to remember it and then you'd be like ah what just what did you talk about i think i missed something you're already thinking how to respond when you were halfway. Yeah, because mm -hmm. yeah. you were trying to think of suggestions or like you're trying to think about how can you help them instead mm -hmm. of focusing on what that person was telling you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was um, talking mental. Like oh, a talking, talking mental. mental. Yeah. I love that. I love Aaron. Aaron's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was his event like two years ago. Yeah. We had like a briefing session mm -hmm. like before we get into the ice bath. It was really challenging again. Mm -hmm. And speaking of ice bath, Jess actually introduced us to Jen at the gym mm -hmm. um, and we had an incredible six weeks program from my experience I think like my body and my mind was very subtly changing not knowing that I was being disciplined for six weeks to even just showing up mm -hmm. at the gym <laughs> yeah it was tough yeah the stairs to Soho it's very even tough. just the steps going to the gym <laughs> <laughs> Especially when time was tight, I was like, oh my god, I have to walk up that steep slope. <laughs> I mean, we're really big believers, as everyone is, I think, in the connection between the physical and the mental health. Mm. Especially in a city like Hong Kong, fitness can feel quite inaccessible to a lot mm. of people. It's incredibly expensive, some of the gyms. Mm. People feel very tight on time, like, how could I possibly fit this into my day? You know, I've got a family, I've got um, work to go to. Mm. Um, so what we wanted to start exploring was, could we work with certain and organizations mm. to not only bring down the price mm -hmm. but to try and do it in, in a way that can fit in with people's lifestyles the mm. first one we did was with the gym um really grateful to lee and to ben and to jen for helping us out with mm. that um and we had a six-week program created by lee which was in both english and cantonese we had six uh, fitness sessions use of the ice bath and the sauna just about trying to get people through the door in gyms mm. they can feel really intimidating mm. um on top of the expense and just trying to show people that like this could actually be something you could try mm, could benefit yeah. your health mm. and also just building a bit of community and a bit mm. of like connection we're yeah. doing these things in a group setting yeah mm -hmm. we have a run club as well which happens on a monthly basis mm. but it's going to bi-weekly and we're also launching a new move partners uh, project with a fantastic yoga instructor and sound healer called Haynock and move studios in centrals for me it's an opportunity to be present jen was so amazing like she's so welcoming and she makes sure that we're working out within our capabilities mm. but i was so focused on working that muscle mm. that you kind of just forget all the thoughts that you have so instead of like working out i see it as like a quality alone time with my mind yeah, yeah. i think that's that's a better way to put it instead of getting toned or yeah, yeah. having those associated stereotype about exercise yeah yeah 100 yeah, it's, it's meditative mm. um, 
the process through fitness, through running, whatever, mm. really does bring you back to yourself and your body and kind of erases the external that's going on around yeah. you. So I definitely relate to what you said there. Do you mean like your emotions, you were kind of pushing that away? So you were trying to avoid understanding how mm -hmm. you were feeling? Mm -hmm. When you're running, I, I found it in particular, like mm. that is this quiet. And mm, it's like you are yeah. there with your thoughts. Yeah. Like you can't run or get away from them. I know you're running, but you can't get away from them and run away from them anymore. Like yeah. there's no fighting for oxygen. <laughs> I wish that conversation kind of normalized in workplace because work is such a big part mm -hmm. and I feel like in workplace we always lack of that emotional literacy or even focus on mental wellness. To be true about it, sometimes the workspace is not a safe place for mm -hmm. you to open up because they're inherently competitive yeah. mm -hmm. and you might be in a situation where people are looking at you and mm -hmm. judging you for being quote-unquote emotional and mm. using that against mm. you. Yeah. So mm. sometimes it's not safe, but what we can do is we can hire and recruit people who have, have some level of emotional literacy. Mm. I don't think in interview questions we really even ask questions about how do you care for the people, mm. your colleagues, people around you. Mm. We don't we just say, you know, how do you achieve your revenue target? Like, you know, come on. <laughs> Make um, me money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, are you going to generate some income for us? Yeah. Um, so getting the right people in the right places, sure. but then also like we can do more to train managers like mm. in my workplace it's changing now there is a change i think the pandemic has been a massive catalyst for mm. people to be like we can't carry on like this there's a lot of people who are really struggling here mm. and we have to do something about it we can't ignore it anymore and put it in a box mm. um but i think there's a lot more that we can do we just sort of throw a person in and say here's a team of like 15 people like off you go deal with it um, and we don't really do anything mm. to, to teach them how to have better conversations, mm. what to do if someone discloses mm. something to you about their mental health. I don't think mental health starts with how are you... Yeah, it's, it's a good introduction, but I think it starts with people feeling safe in meetings, mm. raising that, oh, I don't know how to do this, or mm. I need help, I don't think I can hit the target this month. I worked in a corporate and they have this like monthly wellness meeting. Yeah. <laughs> One yoga session and <laughs> per month. I don't understand how that works. We don't check in with the person next to mm. next to me. So I have no idea how is that wellness. You need to penetrate that concept into every layer of you know how you make decisions. Mm. Is it by grip or just a top-down structure? True. And it's on the leaders to role model that, yeah. I would say. Wellness weeks, like don't get me started. <laughs> Self-disclosure, mm. sharing things that you're dealing with, you're struggling mm. with, openly saying that you don't understand something mm. or you can't do something. It starts with them and, you know, them showing up and showing the willing to learn and get better and get more literate in these things mm. is really important. So I think there's got to be some role modelling from leadership to allow people around them to be like, okay, like, maybe I can because they've just shared this about themselves. Yes. Um, mm. So I think it's something that we can do with leadership yeah. teams. The last question. Mm. Um, considering unlabeling effect. I wonder if there is one thing that you really think the society could unlabel to help people to better manage their emotional wellness. Mm -hmm. For me, it's that certain topics are taboo and can't be spoken about. Um, what I've learned from my own personal journey, there shouldn't be anything mm. at all that we feel afraid to mm. share with someone. 
And I'm not saying do it in every scenario. I feel like a hypocrite myself because it's only really the past year that I've shared things about me that I felt really ashamed about. Mm. For example, like the actual circumstances of my dad dying. Mm. I, don't, I don't, I speak to hardly anyone in the world about that. Maybe mm. like two people. Mm. Um, I've had issues with alcohol in my life. Like there's been times where I've really struggled where, you know, I've, I've drank alcohol at 7 a.m. The first time I told anyone that was this year. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, a man that I started to date. When I did that, I just learned, like, it just released all these kind of really intense, shameful feelings that I was experiencing about the things that I felt was bad. And I think mm -hmm. I just want to say to people, look, like, you're not bad. And if you carry these really heavy things inside you and you feel this shame, you feel there's no way you can go to say this to someone, it's going to significantly kind of impact the way you feel and your ability to kind of go through life and live your life and give yourself that self-forgiveness. There's nothing about you that you can't tell someone. Mm -hmm. And that thing that you're holding onto, that dark secret or that thing you feel ashamed about, once it's released, it will do such incredible things for your sense of well-being and yeah. how you feel and your relationships and your connections. When I opened up about the issues that I'd had with drinking, mm -hmm. instantly I had people come to me and say, I've done that too. You're not alone. Like mm. You're not as isolated as you feel you are. And there is somebody out there who has felt the way you felt, who's done mm. the thing that you've done. Mm. You're not alone. And you can find community if you get to the point where you can share these things that cause us pain and cause us shame. I love our conversation with Jess today. We've learned so much and I guess like again it's encouraging people to firstly acknowledge that they are struggling and it's completely okay mm -hmm. but I guess it's making sure we try to build our support system by acting on those struggles finding help externally you know to to get you through that journey as jess said earlier if you actually talk about it more you would be surprised how many people would actually resonate with you and encourage them to open up more and then that would just benefit more and more people that's all for today's episode on Mental Health Stories, When Sharing Really Is Caring, featuring Jessica Hulton from The New Normal Hong Kong. Join us again next time when we invite more great minds to be our guests and share their unique journeys. Thank you for tuning in and let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Unlabeling Effect. Please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and iTunes and give us a rating. Until then, dare to feel, dare to be real.